So I think I'd like to begin tonight um, with a came to me while I was uh, listening to NPR last week, and I heard uh, an interview with the man who runs the lost and found department of Grand Central Station in New York. (laughs) And I kind of thought, that was a strange choice of subject matter. (laughs) But it was actually very, very interesting because um, maybe some of you heard it. Did anybody hear it? It was about how um, the, the man in charge of the Lost and Found Department, you could tell he, t- he takes great pride in his work because they have such a high success rate of returning uh, lost items to their owners. 700,000 people a day pass through Grand Central Station in Manhattan. And um, they often leave things either in the station or on the train. And they often get returned to the Lost and Found Department and they have a very specific and elaborate um, way of, you know, cataloging the item, knowing what train number it was on, what time it was, it was on there, and they even will go through, if it's a handbag, they'll go through to see if they can find the name of the owner, and they'll call the owner. If it's a cell phone, they'll call all the numbers on the cell phone until they find the owner. And they have a very high success rate of getting the items back to their owners. What does this have to do with anything? (laughs) Some of the things that get left are handbags, of course, cell phones, briefcases with all kinds of things in them, sometimes a lot of money. Sometimes one time there was a suitcase with with, uh, freeze-dried body parts in it. And that was cause for a little, like, whoa. But it turned out it was belonged to a doctor who went around the country lecturing, and he needed these body parts <laughs> with him. <laughs> One time there was an urn that was left, a very beautiful antique urn. And it was, it was left, and then, then this little old lady came and, and claimed it, and she said it was the ashes of her husband. He, he, she had just had him cremated. and. You know, all kinds of things get found and returned to their owners. So I've, I've been thinking about Spirit Rock as a kind of lost and found department. <laughs> <laughs> that, that we often come on retreat with a sense, or not, perhaps not the sense, of having lost something, having lost a part of ourselves, or having some feeling of not being um, whole, not being complete. We feel a sense of lack or that something is missing. And often on retreat, people have a sense of finding something that they didn't perhaps even realize they had lost. In the course of our lives, with all of its stress and its busyness and its eventfulness and drama and loss and, you know, the whole catastrophe, We do, we lose parts of ourselves. We lose the connection sometimes with parts of ourselves, our goodness, our joy, our courage, our laughter, our faith, our passion. 
And then we come on retreat, and I hear it over and over and over again with students, that something gets awakened on retreat, and it's like coming back to yourself, coming back to a long-forgotten part of yourself that you hadn't even realized was gone, but there it is, your old friend. Sometimes it echoes with childhood memories or with uh, a time in your life where you felt very fulfilled and then you lost that feeling and then it returns. So it's a very beautiful part of this journey of reclaiming these lost parts of ourselves. Some of the time we lose the the understanding of something Norman brought up last night. We lose the understanding of love. We, we hear a lot about love in the media, in our culture, in things that we read. We, we have this sense that love is an, you know, a major ingredient in all of our lives. But the way it's presented to us through the media is perhaps it has to appear in a certain form. You know, it has to come as a, as a particular person with a particular, you know, qualifications and you know we we line up love with 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 a kind of um, it has to look a certain way it has to present itself a certain way and um, anyway tonight I want to look at at some of the flavors of love that we may have lost touch with in our lives And then I want to take you into another inquiry exercise because I really do feel that in the inquiry you have a chance to connect more deeply with all these these fine words that we speak up here. Um, So I'm calling these the five flavors of love. And the first is the flavor that I I think I didn't appreciate until, as I get older, I appreciate it more and more. And this is the flavor of love that we could call constancy. Constancy. That willingness that keeps us looking inside, that keeps us meeting the truth of our experience over and over and over again. I know when I first started practice many years ago, I I had thought of this as a kind of, you know, uh, I don't know, kind of an adventure, a kind of exploration that, you know, would end. It would, I'd get the teachings, I'd learn them, I'd, you know, have some kind of experience, and then I'd be on my way. Now, maybe for some people it does work that way, but for myself and I know many other people, it turned instead into this lifelong love affair, a lifelong commitment to keep looking, to keep meeting the truth of of the Dharma, of the teachings of the Buddha, that they are so rich, so powerful. Why would anyone want to do anything else? It's a, a sense of constancy with something that you love and value. 
and that you keep returning to out of that love, not out of any obligation, not out of any moral duty, that doesn't go very far, but this, this wellspring of love that just wants to keep meeting life. And it's also true that this constancy is required because some territory that we visit inside, and this really relates to the creative process, I think that in the creative process, how many of you have found yourselves visiting the same images over and over again, or perhaps the same uh, words or events or um, emotions over and over again. They keep calling you. You you think you're going to write something else, and then you find you're back in the same old territory. There's something there that is asking for your attention. And the same in meditation. We find ourselves visiting and revisiting often the same kinds of territory. Perhaps it's judgment, perhaps it's fear, perhaps it's um, it, it can be anything really. A certain emotion that keeps wanting to be known, a certain event in one's life. And this is a good thing because sometimes the things that repeat when they have energy for us, they are our path. They are the process of learning itself. And when, when we've done the work that needs to be done with them, then perhaps they don't keep returning in the same way. But this willingness to keep returning, I think of as a kind of constancy, a kind of, a kind of love. The poet Rilke he said those things whose essential life you want to know deeply ask you are you free? Are you prepared to devote all your love to me? In order for a thing to speak to you you must regard it for a certain time as the only one that exists as the one and only phenomenon which, through your laborious and exclusive love, is now placed at the center of the universe. So we keep revisiting those places inside that call us. We keep showing up, even when we're not sure why we are showing up and opening ourselves to the next moment and the next and the next. The other flavors of love are written about extensively in the Buddhist tradition. They're called the four Brahma-viharas or the four divine dwellings of heart and mind. Many of you have um, practiced with them, know them very well. Some of you perhaps are hearing this for the first time. So let me, let me go over them. The first of the Brahma-viharas uh, is the quality of metta, or loving-kindness. Loving-kindness practice. We teach whole retreats where we practice nothing but loving-kindness practice. 
And it is that quality of meeting ourselves with unconditional love. Metta is unconditional love. Mostly in our lives, we know perhaps conditional love. I'll love you if you do this, or I'll love you, you'll love me if I do this. And we we kind of have a negotiation about the kind of love that we're uh, willing to um, be in relationship to. Unconditional love, the, the love of loving kindness, is that quality of loving things no matter what. Loving the world, loving people, no matter what they do, no matter what, it's just love. We can't help ourselves from loving. It's the kind of love that we feel when we're in love, when we just love people. And I'm not talking about foolish, you know, well, there's a lot to be said in the, in the sense of, you know, we're, I'm not talking about loving in a foolish way so that we, we put ourselves in harm's way or anything like that. But just that quality of seeing that the heart basically, fundamentally, has a response to the world that is love. When you look at a small baby, you're walking down the street and there's a baby, you notice how it's a magnet. People just, you know, come towards that baby, especially if it's smiling and happy. And, you know, you just feel that quality of love. It's just there under the surface all the time. It doesn't need very much to come out. And so that quality of unconditional love is just that desire to connect, not for any agenda, not for any reason, just because it's the heart's way. That's what the heart does. It wants to meet the world, and it wants to be met. It wants to have that feeling of exchange, of connection, just for the sake of love. So that's the quality of unconditional love, of loving kindness. And we do it, you know, as a practice. It's, um, it's a wonderful practice. Then there's the quality of compassion, which is another flavor of love. The flavor of love that arises in the face of suffering. Compassion arises in the face of suffering. Unlike metta, which is just love, compassion is that strength of the heart to respond when there's suffering. And it too arises very spontaneously. It's like we see it whenever there's a we seem to have an inordinate number of disasters in the world lately, but we see it whenever there is a disaster. We can be sure that on the news we we hear more about the disaster than we do about the people who who are just rushing in there with compassion to try to help. You know, 9-11 was a good example, the tsunami was a good example. That whenever there is suffering in the world, there is also, you will find compassion present because there are so many people who, who respond with compassion when there is suffering. 
And it is that ability of the heart to meet the suffering without fear. It's just the natural response to suffering. So in that compassion, there is a sense of equality. We're not meeting the suffering as, oh, poor you. It doesn't have a quality of pity. It doesn't have a quality of looking down. It's just wanting to meet again that quality of, I've been there. I know how this is. Let me help. What can I do to help? Not to make it go away, not to fix it, but to be present, to be there. Then there is the flavor of what is called mudita. Maybe some of you are staying in the building, mudita building, yes. That's the quality of sympathetic joy, taking joy and delight in the happiness of others, taking joy and delight in the fact of joy, that it's present in our world. And it's like, it's like the joy that we feel at a wedding, you know, when, when two people are feeling joyful and, and it, it's contagious. We, we catch the joy that's in the room. I feel that often when I walk into the, the painting studio and I feel that, you know, I see, the, see Barbara's joy. She really, you know, she has a lot of this quality of taking joy in, the, in your joy as you paint, as you open. She has that quality of, of mudita very strongly in her nature. She always has. So when we see that in another, we can take delight in it. Instead of feeling envy, instead of feeling limited by somebody else's joy, we realize in a funny way that we can partake of that. What's to stop us from also feeling joy? That's an interesting exploration. Why not join in the fun? Then the fourth flavor of love is that of upeka. Some of you are staying in that building. And that, that's the quality of equanimity of heart, that quality of seeing that we really do love life. We love others. We, we want to help others. And as sometimes, no matter what we do, it doesn't help. No matter how much we care for somebody, they seem bent on some kind of destructive path. We, we do our best to show our love and our care, and sometimes it doesn't seem to, to influence others. And so that is the quality of, of equanimity, that as much as we love and care for others, as much as we wish them happiness, it, it, doesn't, it, it can only do that. And then it's up to the, the other person. It's sort of like the serenity prayer in the 12-step program, um, which I'm trying to remember. Does anybody remember it? Yeah, the wisdom to know the difference. Grant me the serenity to accept the things the strength to change the things I can. The serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The, the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. And the wisdom to know the difference. So that is in the equanimity practice. 
to see that uh, we do our very best. And, and if somebody is willing to receive our love, hooray. If they are not, we need to let go and let, let life take them on, their, on the journey they need to go on. It's kind of like the parent letting go of the kid who leaves home. You know, as a parent, you have to say goodbye, good luck, <laughs> call if you need help. <laughs> but you have to let go. So, so these are sort of the different expressions of this quality of love that get developed as we practice. And I know you've all bumped into these in your lives, perhaps in your practice. And we give these some attention as we practice. For our purposes, these are qualities of love that are resources for us in whether we're doing meditation or whether we're doing creative work, that we can We can, in knowing about them, in knowing that they are resources, that they are here as as ways of experiencing ourselves more deeply, experiencing the world more deeply, we can exercise them, whether we're painting or writing or or, um, going into meditation. Because any of these practices, if they're working, if they're doing their work in us, some kind of love will start being released. Some kind of new sense of connection to life begins to happen inside. Perhaps as compassion, perhaps as joy, perhaps as a deeper wisdom of equanimity. I remember a story of a screenwriter who said he had an assignment to write a screenplay about Napoleon, and he really despised Napoleon. He had no interest in Napoleon, but he needed the money, so he had to do the screenplay. So he began to do research on Napoleon and discovered, much to his amusement, finally, that actually he thought Napoleon was quite interesting and quite an amazing person when he really got to know him. (laughs) He kind of fell in love with his character (laughs) of Napoleon. So we don't know in our creative work where we're going to open to that connection, to that new way of feeling or seeing. That's happened a lot in my painting. Painting people I know has been wonderful. I have seen, felt, experienced all kinds of understanding in a deeper way, all kinds of new perceptions of that person. So when we open ourselves in in this way, doing creative work, we are opening ourselves to a kind of love. So that's what I want to explore in our dyad work here tonight. So partner up, find a partner once more.
All right, so we're going to do a repeat, we're going to do two repeating questions, actually. First, we're going to look at some of the obstacles to love, and then we're going to look at love itself. And this is, this is fairly typical of our practice, that first we need to see what's in the way, and then we can see how it's being experienced, how we're manifesting the quality. So, so the first part of the exer- exercise will be looking at the, the obstacle. And so the question for the first part of the exercise is, tell me what blocks your love. Tell me what blocks your love. Again, this is not a cocktail party conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me what blocks your love, you know. But this this is a deep inquiry into something that potentially can inform, uh, can, can bring some light to what's, what, is, what our own experience is. And again, there's no right answer, there's no wrong answer, there's just the exploration, there's just an opportunity in this little tiny space of time, in your little tiny life, to look at this question. Tell me what blocks your love. Look inside, see what comes. Maybe you'll say, nothing blocks my love, I have no blocks whatsoever. Okay, thank you. Tell me what blocks your love. (laughs) Take another look inside and see if there's any little thing in there you might mention. Well, sometimes, sometimes I like to file my nails when my husband is talking and he gets annoyed. You know, just anything. It can be anything. So don't think of the biggest, most horrible things, you know, but think of all kinds of ways that your love might be blocked. Okay, so decide who's going to be the the questioner. And when you're ready, please begin. The second part of the exercise will be exploring the question, this question. Tell me a way you love. Tell me a way you love. Tell me a way you love. I love the sunlight in the morning. Thank you. Tell me a way you love. I love the cracks in the sidewalk. Thank you. Tell me a way you love. I love people when they're not talking. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Tell me a way you love. Like that. Just whatever comes. So decide who's going to go first. And please begin. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.